0: Welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, here we go again, again, with SST 173, the HR, now you say 12-inch. We've had HR on a few times over the last few weeks, and we will again in the upcoming weeks. But to give us another interesting perspective on this era of HR and this recording, Brent, we've got a special guest. Yeah, we have Jim Ebert on the show. Yeah, Jim was uh, you know, behind the desk twisting the knobs for these sessions um, with others, but we're going to hear about it from someone who was who was actually there, so it's awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah, man.
0: Hit me with some spiels, Ryan. All right. One of your favorite topics, Brant. My first spiel is on literature. Okay. Okay. So, two books, they are not out yet, but I just saw some notes on them and i'm interested in checking them out maybe you will be too uh, the first one is called sellout the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk emo and hardcore 1994 to 2007. it's out on uh, houghton mifflin harcourt in october it says it is a comprehensive chronicle of the punk scenes evolution from early 90s to the mid aughts following 11 bands as they dissolved, sold out, and rose to superstardom. There's no info, though, on which bands. This guy who wrote it, Dan Ozzy, though, um, is the same author who wrote the Laura Jane Grace book. So it it might have stuff by bands kind of like Against Me or Alkaline Trio or Dashboard Confessional. Not really my cup of tea, but still maybe an interesting read. Right. The second book I saw note of, even less info on this one, but it's called Destroy All Music, Pioneers of Punk Rock in Southern California. This one is written by punk historian and Alice Bag bassist David O'Jones. Mm-hmm. There's no other info on this that I could find yet, but I read about it on the Please Kill Me website. So that one is definitely going to be worth checking out. Perhaps... More so than the sellout book, but both are maybe interesting in checking out. Oh well, I'll
1: I'll ask David. I've we've talked to him. I don't think we've had him on as a guest, but I've talked to him about some stuff. He was in Magnolia Thunderpussy. Yeah, well, ask David. What
0: the hell is up with this book? I, I want to know more. I will. Yeah. Okay. New segment, Brent. New segment. New segment. You know the segment three on the tree? Yeah. This is five on the tree. Okay. Wow. I didn't know it could go up to five. This one is going up to five. And Brent, you know, if who's on first... Watt's on bass? You got it. So the first one is uh, a release by a band called the Cutthroat Brothers. This is a garage punk duo. They have a new album coming out with Watt on bass. Coming out June the 12th, it looks to be a Record Store Day drop on Hound God Records, Mm -hmm. produced by Jack and Dino. And artwork by Raymond Pettibone. It looks cool. And I check. they have one kind of sample track. It's all right. It's. I think it's going to be good to check out. Hound God's pretty consistently good label. That's the label yeah. that releases the Pat Todd stuff and
1: yep. some of the Scott Deluxe Drake
0: stuff, like the Love Sores. Yep. yep. I, I, I. When I was looking at the label, I'm like, oh, yeah, Brent knows this label. I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Second on the tree, Brent. Uh, first, I would like you to take me to a particular zone that we all love. Okay. We're going to the comp zone. (laughs) And, And for this one, Brent, I don't know who's on third, but... Watts on base? That's right. A new comp called Horsey Can't Swim. A love letter to this guy, Brett Underwood, who looks to be a promoter and a community radio programmer in St. Louis, Missouri. It's a benefit... For him since, like all promoters over the last year, they've had a really hard time. This is a cool comp, though, that uh, people are contributing tracks to to help people in the music scene out, um, like Brett. Um, There's over 40 tracks on it, including a Sun Raw song called Exotic Forest, performed by Henry Kaiser, Damon Smith and Mike Watt. Hmm. Um, This is a pay what you want type of benefit comp. Horsey Can't Swim. Check that one out. Okay. Okay, third on the Tree Brand. I don't give a darns on short, but... Watt's on bass. (laughs) That's right. So there's a new release with uh, Mike Watt coming out. The album is called Real Manic Time by SLW C.C. Watt. SLW stands for Samuel Locke Ward. He is... uh, I don't know much about him. I've just kind of learned about him by seeing this release. Um, but what I saw on Discogs is that he's a self-made songwriter, singer, multi-instrumentalist, uh, a producer, a performance artist, and a home taper. He's got tons of releases on Discogs. Um, he somehow hooked up with Mike for this record. There are 30 tracks on it, and there will be a, a physical copy out eventually on Personal Archives records. So look out for that. Cool, man. Watts on bass. Watts on bass. Nope. No, no. for the fourth on the tree, brand, I want you to hold on to your jazz beanie. (laughs) Okay. You got it? I got it. Firm grip on that jazz beanie? I do. Okay. There's a new record coming out by the band Split Single. Do you know this band? Hmm, Yes, I do. Who is it? So I actually... Did not know about this band, and now I'm really happy that I do. I was surprised I didn't, but I'm happy now that I do. Um, It is Jason Narducey and John Worcester from the Bob Mm Mould Band. Yeah, I read about this. Yeah, Yeah. this time around, it's Mike Mills from R.E.M. on bass. They've got a new record coming out called Amplificado, due out on June the 25th on Outside Music, recorded at Chicago's Electrical Audio. The single that's out now to check it out... um, Nothing you can do to end this love. It's awesome. I'm surprised I didn't know about this band. I gotta check them out. Um, Gotta get this one. And I mean, no surprise, but uh, Worcester's drumming on it just sounds so rad. Mm. An electrical audio studio on that record. Whoa! Just the single. I gotta hear the record just for the drumming. Mm. And is the bass uh, playing? Do they use the tippy toe? Only if Dale Nixon taught it to Mike Mills. But here's hoping. Here's hoping. Fifth on the tree, and my final one. Okay? Five on the tree. Got it? Yeah. Here we go. The band Truly is re-releasing, like, probably my favorite record by them, called Fast Stories from Kid Coma. They put this out again last, like, a a remastered version last year, only on digital, so I haven't really checked it out. But it is going to come out on a double vinyl gatefold special here, in uh, June, which is awesome. I want to check this one out for sure. And Truly, of course, is Hero from Soundgarden, Robert on vocals and guitars, but then also Mark Pickerel from um, Screaming Trees on drums. Mm. The Truly records are awesome. Can't wait to hear Fast Stories on double vinyl. Love it. Right on, man. What you got? That's it? That's like seven spiels, man. What do you mean that's it?
1: (laughs) All right. Well, I have a recommend, Ryan. Do it. It, but it's not for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was just thinking it's been a long time since you've tried to trick me into listening to hair metal. Thank God. Yeah, so I'm reading a book called
1: Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion by Tom Bejure and Richard Beanstalk. It's an oral history. Almost everyone is interviewed for it except, you know, the people that you, that you already know aren't going to participate in something like this, like, Axel Rose, for example. Obviously, I grew up on this stuff. I still think there's some great music that came out of that scene that's kind of unfairly maligned and holds up really well today. Like the first L.A. Guns, all of Twisted Sister's records, uh, Appetite for Destruction, the first Faster Pussycat, early Dawkin, the first two Motley Crue records, Van Halen, Junkyard, Hannah Rocks. Don't forget. Yeah, well, they're they're not part of this really. You tried to get me to listen to them, and they're definitely hair metal. No, they're not hair metal. Uh, (laughs) All the Cinderella records, the first couple, Rat, the first three Wasp albums, great stuff. This book kind of covers it all, including the stuff that I'm not really into, like Bon Jovi and Warrant and Poison, but it's a good read. And also kind of related to that, Ryan, a rock doc that I've been wanting to see that I, I finally got around to seeing. It's called Mean Man, The Story of Chris Holmes. Uh, it's probably the closest we'll ever get to a Wasp documentary since Blackie will never agree to do one. If you're a fan of Chris Holmes' era Wasp and you want to see some great footage of that you know that era of the band and get his account of why he was kind of in and out of the band, this documentary is the one to
0: see. I loved it. And Wasp Rules, end of story. So tell me why I should check out Wasp. You won't like him. But what, well, tell me, tell me what their story is. Like, is, is this the, um, are these the ones that were like Christian or. No, that's Striper. (laughs) Okay. So what's Wasp? Were they Satanist? No, they're like, uh, you know, they're like the
1: LA shock rock band. They were the, you know, like had a naked woman on a torture rack and yeah 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 okay uh, that's throwing raw meat at the crowd and all that kind of stuff but the music's great on those first three records but you wouldn't like it it's not your not your cup of tea
0: i'll take your advice on that yeah uh here's
1: something are we still in the comp zone ryan
0: uh no we left as soon as you started talking about 80s hair metal take us back back in
1: so this is a recommend for you it's a box set actually called shake the foundations Militant Funk and the Post-Punk Dance Floor, 1978-84. to 84. Oh, yeah. Three CDs. It's on Cherry Red. There are a number of these kind of box set comps on Cherry Red. Uh, I usually collect them. The liner notes are generally pretty good. Uh, they're usually reasonably priced. This one's compiled by British DJ Bill Brewster. Uh, really great stuff. You know, it's funky. Elements of dub, no wave, all you know, through a post-punk filter, you can really hear the influence, you know, that Pill, Gang of Four, Talking Heads had yep. back then. Yep. There's some well-known groups on here, like A Certain Ratio, The Stranglers, Jaw Wobble, Ian Dury, Pop Group, uh, but then some lesser-known ones. John Cooper Clark is on here, who I mentioned last week when I was talking about that Erg, a music war. And hey,
0: you know what? That doc, you're absolutely right that Gang of Four steals the show on that. Yeah. That live footage of Gang of Four on there is in. Sane. Yeah. He's on here
1: uh, with a great track called Post-War Glamour Girl. Some other bands are like Tones on Tail, Surface Mutants, Nightmares in Wax, Diagram Brothers, The Chicken Granny, Vicious Pink, Perfect Zebras, Fun Boy 3. There's some great stuff on here to discover. So that's a really great, reasonably priced comp. Yeah, I'm into that. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) I'm I uh, I don't have five on the tree, Ryan. I'm just sticking to the standard three on the, three on the tree.
0: That's okay. You have three more that I didn't mention? Yeah. Well mine were all new releases. Yeah. Are yours new releases? No, none of these are new. Okay, there you go. Okay. Kool-Aid Acid
1: Test on the trail of Dr. Brain is the name of the record. Two thousand one Hazelwood Records. A cool German label. They have a lot of the the Joe Biza stuff on there, like post-SST, Universal Congress of, Mechalodics. They did the CD release of The Great One Is Dead, the Saccharin Trust record. Uh, This band is just some German dudes, and then Steve Gaeta, who played bass on some post-SST, Universal Congress of records, and Steve Moss of UCO and Saccharin Trust on vocals and sax. It's a bit all over the place musically. Like, they're not afraid to try anything, but the base element of it is jazz. It can get funky at times. Uh, some really great samples used in really creative ways. This is a recommend for sure. They have two other records too. Kind of active between 98 and 2003. Isotope 217 or 217. I'm not sure how they say it. Utonian Automatic from 1999 on Thrill Jockey. Bit of a Chicago supergroup. Matthew Lux plays bass. Um, He was in this band Heroic Doses, who I've mentioned before. They have an amazing record on Sub Pop. Uh, Rob Mazurek on Trumpet. He founded the Chicago Underground. They have a bunch of releases on Thrill Jockey. Jeff Parker on guitar also played with Chicago Underground. He's also in Tortoise and like a thousand other groups. John Herndon played in Five Style, kind of a pre-Heroic Doses band, also with stuff on Sub Pop. He was in Precious Wax Drippings, Poster Children, The Four Carnation, also Tortoise, and Dan Bitney is in this group. He's the SST connection, of course. Uh-huh. From Tar Babies, Tortoise, etc. This album is the middle one of their three records. They're all on Thrill Jockey, released between '97 and 2000. It's avant-garde. It's funky at times. They They use electronics. I like it best when they get jazzy. It can be a challenging listen, but That's a good thing in my world. So check that out. And then finally, Ryan, I finally got the Tom Hofer album, Clearing House. I've been wanting to hear this since he mentioned it way back when. Tom was in The Leaving Trains, and we'll be seeing him later in Danny and the Doorknobs' Trotsky Ice Pick. This record came out in 2002. It's super cool and eclectic. Uh, There's some Motown soul on it, some straight-up rock, some Calypso. Uh, Really? Yeah. Hmm. David Winogrand of Two Damascus plays drums on about half of it. Sylvia Junkoza is on a track. Tom's brother Mamford plays on it, also of Leaving Trains. It's a cool record. Tom ought to put it up on Bandcamp for people to check out.
0: Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah.
1: That's it, Ryan. Should we uh, get into some HR? Yeah, man. History lesson, part one.
0: All right Brent, we've had these tracks on the show before but longer versions of them. And so we'll we'll get into that in a bit. Um, and we just had an HR release on a couple of episodes ago for the HR tapes SST171. So where should we go with this one? I mean these tracks are from I think it's SST117, is that right? Yeah, I'll just point people to that episode. We had Kenny Dredd
1: on as a guest, and we we do a way deeper dive into this era of the band. But in case people don't want to go back to that, uh, it's Kenny Dredd on bass, Earl Hudson on drums, David Byers on guitar, Oscar Brown Jr. on piano and synthesizer, Harvey Braxton on percussion, and of course, HR, a.k.a. Ross Gabriel Josephi, on vocals. Oscar Brown Jr. mixed and co-produced the record along with David Byers. And as you'll hear in the interview, you know, uh, I think Oscar Brown Jr. kind of gets, I'll use the word, the blame for the production on this record. Uh, It was engineered by Jim Ebert and Joe Galchion at Q Recording Studios in Falls Church, Virginia. We'll get into it a little bit more when we go through these tracks on this, Ryan, but let's throw it over to Jim. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Jim Ebert. Jim, thanks for being on the show.
2: Absolutely, my pleasure.
1: Can you take me back, Jim? I believe you grew up in D.C.?
2: Right outside of D.C. in Falls Church. You know, I was in uh, uh, an amateur band as a teenager and literally found the... uh, After eight years, we dissolved in a recording studio. I was pretty young. I was about 20 years old. We were together since we were little kids. So uh, and I kind of stayed there. And uh, I was pretty fortunate because... Hard, I was very young. I was Like I said, I think I was 20, 20, 20 years old. And and the D.C. hardcore scene was pretty prominent. Um, so I was in the right place at the right time because people that wanted to do hardcore recordings typically wanted them to sound like shit. And I was <laughs> the new engineer that could definitely make you sound like shit. Um, so it was a good, good way to learn. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if, if you screwed something up, it actually sounded great for the record. So I did a lot. Uh, I mean, there's there's groups that were out here. There was outrage. That was a go-go kind of thing. That was um, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss out. Beef eater. Mm-hmm. I did a, a i I did different stuff on some HR records, different recordings and overdubs and mixes, sort of randomly. He was a big. We, we were a basement studio called Q Recording in in Fall Church in a house,
1: oh, the basement
2: see. of the uh, uh, owner's house. So that's where most of those early records were made uh and then uh it's about love, I think was one of them um I can't remember the other the other album that we that we did in the basement, and then we moved to a more commercial facility and uh that's where we did charge
1: gotcha so you were just an engineer at q the owner originally lived yeah. above the
2: original studio that's his actually his parents did oh okay. and he did so yeah, so they were very um Forgiving, let's let's say that could be when, <laughs> you know, when, when when Rastafarians show up at your door at eleven thirty at night looking for the studio, <laughs> a lot of parents would freak out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they were they were great about that. So as long as we we shut the the the, uh, the bass amps down by by I think ten o'clock at night, we were good.
1: Now, what kind of band were you playing in prior to this? Were you involved? like
2: like a. Uh, like a like a like a, a Brit influenced rock band, played guitar and keyboards and tried to sing. Um, we had a great time, you know. We we mainly our our biggest achievements probably were college frat parties, but but that was great. We had a great time. I sort of evolved. I I, I went through went through the studio that that we did charge, and I, I was the chief engineer there. And then at 29, I moved to Los Angeles. Um, mainly as a mixing engineer, and I mixed four years, probably full, three or four years, primarily in the R&B world. Because when I moved to LA, I had an R&B hit single that I mixed, so that was where my bread and butter was going to be made. But I, I eventually went back to just doing producing, really rock, alternative rock, other other kinds of things. I, I kind of, I guess, a lot of engineers are, are unspoken producers. I guess through through the through their time, and I, I definitely was one of those where, you know, young young artists would come in, and I would I would try to help them and guide them into the right form of their song without being pushy. You could tell when people didn't want to be helped, right? Or I could, right? You know, I I, I was good at at least gauging that you know they don't they don't they could use my help, but they're they they don't want it. Um, so I, I was good at backing off on those situations. Right.
1: Okay, back to HR. So the first record, it's about love. Done at Q in the summer of 84. It's credited to Jeff Jeffrey.
2: Right. He was the owner. Okay. So he did, I would say he did most of that record. I did uh, some of the overdubs. I did some of the mixing. It was a weird situation because Jeff was the owner and he had another company, a painting company that he was starting to get bigger and bigger projects on. So he sort of slightly started delegating everything to me. Who was who? I, we were actually recording there, and we broke up while we were making our first record. Uh, and I just kind of stuck around. And, and at that point, Jeff hated our he hated our band. <laughs> we were everything he disliked in music. So basically, about halfway through our record, he he asked me if I would just finish it. Um, and I was the guy in the band that played synthesizers and that kind of stuff and fixed stuff. So engineering came pretty quickly to me. Uh, and I really loved it, so I gladly took over, and then I just never left.
1: So for It's About Love, do you recall the sessions at all? I've read that they were
2: done yeah, very yeah, quickly. Yeah. They, were, they were done very quickly. Uh, all the records back then were done pretty quickly in our world. I remember some guitar overdubs. I think the guy was, I'm going to screw his name, it was Timo or Tico.
1: Yep, Tico uh, Zamora. Yep, yeah,
2: yep, yeah. so I remember him, and he was amazing. Yeah, like I said, that record's more foreign to me, but but Charge, you know, I, I co-produced the record and, and recorded it, so I know, know everything that went on with that record.
1: Yeah, the sessions that you're talking about with Tico would have been a second session in the summer of 85 for a track called uh, "Out Keep Out of Reach and The Power of Trinity, which is also right. listed as yourself, Jeff, and John Beale. Who's
2: John? <laughs> <laughs> John uh, was... God, i hate I don't want to talk poorly about anyone uh John was a nice guy that tried to produce our band and was not competent of doing that and then he stuck around and engineered and he did some stuff. so I didn't know John had done any of that recording okay,
1: yeah, well, this is discogs and liner Got notes, it. so <laughs> you know not always accurate for sure
2: that's right. that's okay.
1: there was an another record recorded in eighty seven there. Uh, under with HR's band Human Rights, credited to you and Joe Galchion?
2: Right, Joe was an uh, was one of the engineers at the studio. I see. Uh, he started. He came in through with a couple groups that he brought in, uh, producing them, and then sort of uh, took on part time work through the studio. Okay. Which which record was that?
1: That's just called Human Rights. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that one would have been produced by David Byers. Does that ring
2: a bell? Right. Yep. Well, there was a record that we did. Uh, Oscar, a producer, a guy from New York. And it was unfortunate because Oscar came down. Um, Oscar, God, I can't think of his name. Robertson or Peterson. He was Oscar son Brown of Jr., perhaps? Oscar, that's right. Yeah. Thank you. So he came down and... Um, did a really cohesive record with HR, which uh, is not that easy to do. (laughs) Um, It's just not, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's all over the place. And he he put together a really nice record, maybe more keyboards than maybe what HR needs. But uh, at the end of it, I think that uh, other people didn't like it, that it was so far away from HR. But I honestly thought it might have given HR a little more uh, commercial opportunity. Um, but, uh, Dave Byers and Kenny Dredd were part of Olive Tree records and they did a lot of work with, with, with Joseph and, uh, and some of it they did really well and some of it they did, they did really bad. And and that record I thought was not, uh, it was done pretty well and then it was screwed up. Let me just say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely dated sounding today. Right. Do you recall if any of the Ross Michael Zion train album was done at Q? Yes, it was.
2: I do. And it was mainly done by Jeff. Okay. Um, I did his, I recorded stuff for his, I, it was, uh, Michael and Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Ross, I didn't do much of that record. Yeah. There was a lot of reggae at the time as well as it's, it's a hardcore scene. There was a lot of reggae, um, from my experience anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. Tell me about working with HR and the, you know, you mentioned some challenges. Can you expand on that?
2: Politely, I will. <laughs> um, things can change quickly, right? I, I learned that working with him early, meaning let's do this, let's do that. So, for engineering-wise, it once you get everything set up to a point where you can plug things in quickly and or just leave it, it's fine. And once you understand that's how the session is going to go, you just leave it so that you can bounce around quickly uh, at you know at his whim. The other thing, just that there, there's a little volatility occasionally with within players, of uh, different different scenarios. But I won't go into that too far. But he was, he um, was really, he he's a force. I mean, he's definitely a force. He, you know, when we we're making a charge, he brought a trumpet to this. He doesn't play trumpet. Mm-hmm. I think he still carries one around with him. But uh, maybe he's good by now. But he doesn't play trumpet. But he would hold it to his mouth and make the sound he wanted the trumpets to do and they would do it or they would they would try I, I, they would do what i call they they had what's called rasta tuning <laughs> so the, the the horns were a little out of tune and uh the guy that was co-producing the record with me my friend scott mm-hmm. and i would uh put emulator trumpet sample back then an the emulator was the, the big sampler we would put trumpet samples into the emulator and play along. So it sort of pulled the tuning of the horns in a little more. Mm. So we'd have two relatively out of tune horns and we didn't have digital audio to retune everything. It was all, all tape then of course. And we would just sort of played along with the Mellotron and that seemed to make it work. Not the Mellotron, we played along with the, uh, the, uh, emulator.
1: What about recording vocals for HR? Like wh- how many takes would you have done on some of these? <laughs> multiple well, or he would done hit it
2: he would have done one yeah <laughs> he would have been done he would have been one and done yeah. i i he placated me when i would you know so we need, need to go back and the typically it was one take mm-hmm. and then we would go back and fix the spot here or there but he would he would look at it cuz i say you're just really sharp there and he he'd kind of look at me like okay jim that's fine and you could tell he was completely fine with it if he if we just left it but i i I let a lot a lot of it slip by. There's a lot of things in the vibe tuning world on that record, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's just a couple a couple of flagrant fouls where you say, okay, let's let's fix that. But pretty much one take. Uh, you know, we might get through one from what I remember. He'd say, I didn't feel it on that. Let's do it again. So that's usually how that everything went fast. You know, his brother was playing drums on that record, and and he's a great drummer or he was, I haven't haven't seen him in years, but he he just, he really could make it so that nearly anyone could come in and play and the record was going to be okay. And then we had, I believe, Englishman on bass. Uh, If that's correct. Mm -hmm. Do you have credits there?
1: Yep, I do, yep. Several guitarists.
2: He he seemed to like rock guitar players a lot. Yeah. So so we would have, um, well, Cajun played on some stuff, Cajun Kelly Played on stuff. Um, Linwood Taylor yep. played a lot of the, the bluesier Phil stuff like on the Sun Charge. Who else was a good play that? Right? Uh, Scott. Scott played some. Yep. That was yeah, your... he played some.
1: Scott was your co-producer? Co-producer. Yeah.
2: Yeah, he was a good friend of mine and became a good friend of HR's. Mm. The only Not... person I dealt with at SST was Rich Ford.
1: So Rick, okay. Rich would have been coordinating these projects with you, I'm assuming. Yeah,
2: but he was he, he was in the West Coast, though, so I never met him. But we we would check in now and then. There were some tracks on that record that that I don't know where they are, but they were they didn't they didn't make that record. Who knows where they are? Yeah. Um. Just two or two or three. We mixed. I think we mixed eleven or twelve for the record. I can't remember, but there was a few others that didn't make the record. So they ended up so, on some record company somewhere.
1: Hmm. And that was charge was the last time I think you worked with HR.
2: That's correct.
1: Yeah you mentioned you moved out to LA after having some success with, uh, you know, in the R&B world. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, it was, it was a very fortunate story for me in that, uh, we had an intern, his name was Carl Martin. And he, uh, he said, can you mix my song this Saturday morning? And I only lived two minutes from the studio. I said, yeah, I'll come up and mix it. And, uh, had sold two million records it was a group called shy they were from dc
1: okay and they
2: were all kind of writing on on uh boys to men's coattails Mm -hmm. they so it was an acapella kind of thing it was a beautiful song and uh you know you could feel momentum when when you when i was mixing it i could go you know this could work so it did you know it sold two million and carl very graciously said to me well, I'll get you to Los Angeles to mix the rest of the record. And I thought, well, that's, that's BS. I've heard that before. <laughs> and then, like, two weeks later, I got a call from MCA, and they said, you want to come out and finish the record? And I got up to, I got out to L.A., and I started realizing why a lot of records sounded so good, because they give you a lot of time to mix right. uh, in beautiful studios. So I decided I need to take, a, take a, a shot at that for a while. And that lasted about seven or eight years. Hmm.
1: Yeah, you've worked at a lot of studios with a ton of history, like the Record Plant, Electric Ladyland, Ocean Way.
2: Yeah, I've worked uh, over fifty. Wow, you know, yeah, over fifty. I did count one time as best I could, uh, and then, and when I was in Los Angeles, I just, again i have been fortunate because literally I was thinking about you know taking a pay cut and changing changing fields and and going back to engineering if I could get some rock music, that's where my heart lies. My ex-wife and I were in Las Vegas, and then uh, I got a call from one of my friends who managed, a guy named Jason Faulkner, and said, you know, our engineer uh, backed out of the project. If you can get here by Monday, you can do it. I didn't know who Jason was. And then I got there and did the record. It didn't sell anything, but it was pretty critically acclaimed, and it did end up getting me a lot of work.
1: While you're doing the mixing, what are some of the other notable recordings you've worked on?
2: Uh I I mixed and recorded uh Mer- Meredith Brooks bitch that record mm-hmm. I didn't actually record that song but I mixed it and I recorded and mixed the rest of the record and then ironically I lived in Los Angeles but flew to Virginia where I live about an hour outside to do a a song called Who Got the Hooch or it was a full record for this band called Everything mm-hmm. uh and they had a a song that didn't really it sold like 300,000 copies the east side of the Colorado River. The marketing plan never quite made it to the West Coast properly, sure. unfortunately. Uh, but it was a big hit here, but it was a drag to be living in Los Angeles and call friends and say, yeah, your song's on, the, you know, we hear it, you know? Uh, but it's like, nah, it didn't make it here. You'd have to tune into some crazy station in in uh, up in the mountains. Uh, and then I, did, I ran into, I, I was at a conference, a, a uh, South by Southwest, I ran into a guy, butch walker mm-hmm. and i saw his his band that was called the marvels three and they were really from another planet and when i asked him i couldn't believe that they weren't signed so i started quietly getting songs from him and the demos were all fantastic and the songs were all fantastic and I, I actually got him as the first record offer for the marvels three through Red Ant Records, which was what Shy was on. Oh, okay. Um, he, he didn't take that deal. He took an Elefter deal, which equally failed. So who knows? <laughs> who knows? Oh,
1: I, I believe but Red Ant went went belly up <laughs> fairly they did. quickly. They, I, they, I, I have a cheap trick record on that label that I don't think you can get anymore.
2: Right. <laughs> right. They did they, they did a lot of things that I would like to been part of. They did um, a Sublime record uh which ironically uh the A and R guy I knew pretty well at, at Red Ant, which previously was called Gasoline Alley mm-hmm. and he called me and you know and said, you know, I'm going to see this this kind of rock reggae thing over over near you. Do you wanna go see it? And I just was too burnt out. So that was one of the mistakes I made. <laughs> <laughs> not not going to see Sublime in the infancy period. Right. Um can't can't win
1: them all. Well, music history is littered with those for sure. If that's your biggest mistake, yep. I think you you probably did okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's I's uh, you know I I am a cancer survivor. I don't know if you knew that.
1: No, I didn't.
2: Yeah, I'm a brain cancer survivor.
1: Oh, I'm glad to hear um, you're you're you're, well, you're doing better. 20 years. Oh,
2: good. 20 years. Good. Thank you. Yeah. But I did miss one other thing because I I got diagnosed. <laughs> And I was two weeks away from doing Avril Levine's second record. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, so that, that one kind of sucks. So I've had two bad turns mm-hmm. <laughs> of all 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 the things. So I'll take that.
1: And what are you doing now? I think you have your own studio now, if I'm if I'm right.
2: No, I just I have a, I have a mixing little project studio mixing room in my house. Mm-hmm. Nothing major, but enough to mix. I mean, as as you probably know. Uh, you can mix pretty well from your home these days. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing that and uh, I record. Uh, there's a studio about 45 minutes from me that I was Q recording and now it's called 38 North. And uh, I do the, they they've split in half basically. Someone bought half the studio and that's downstairs. And I do most of my recording there. It's mainly at this point Americana and indie rock, it seems, seems to be most of it. Mm hmm. And I, I do I'll tell you about this. I have a a foundation that I started years ago called Cancer Can Rock where I take musicians with cancer and aggressive cancer and I bring them into a studio and do a song and a video. Oh. Um so there's something permanent regardless of what happens with their cancer. Hmm. Uh so check check it out cancercanrock.org when you, when you get a chance cuz it's it's pretty neat.
1: For sure, we will. Yeah. Great. Jim, thanks so much for
0: taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, my pleasure. I really really appreciate it.
2: No, I I appreciate reaching out.
0: All right. Very cool. As I said, to have someone who was actually there at the desk to tell us about this session. Um, And interesting to kind of hear, you know, Jim's recollection of that session and the the players uh, that were there. Very cool. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to getting into that charge record. That's one I do know. By hr and it's good that's the one that most people say like you know that's the good one or whatever right um which is not completely true there are good tracks on uh, all of the hr records but charge is the one i think for some reason charge might have just had like really good distribution too it seems to be the most well-known one i don't know why but yeah, for sure but i'm i agree i'm looking forward to getting into that one let's talk about these tracks History Lesson, part two. So, hey, Brent, before we talk about these tracks, there is a uh, there's a Spaceman spiel on this record in the SST catalog, and then it also reproduces the, the hype sticker that came on the 12-inch. I've got the 12-inch. I do not have the hype sticker, though. This is what uh, Michael Whitaker said. From the album Human Rights come these two songs on a special 12-inch release. Now You Say, Backed With No Return, makes this one of the Stone Groove Records of the Year. Classic HR songs on this special release. Uh, came out on 12-inch 45 for $4.50, and the hype sticker said, Burn Down the Dance Hall with this killer 12-inch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I'll be
1: honest. This release was probably not necessary. I did ask Brian Long, if this record was used to you know service radio stations or whatever kind of like the SST promos and he didn't Seems like it. Yeah, he said he didn't even know what release I was talking about. So
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean I'm just assuming that that's why because these are shorter versions than on the LP, right? I would think that they're and they're both the exact same length. Yeah. 3 minutes and 47 seconds. That seems to be like radio friendly length, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. So
1: we've got the A side now. You say I like this track. You know I like the lyrics, HR's performance. It's really the production and the chorus on that bass, the synth, the shitty drum sound. It sounds like Earl maybe playing some pads even.
0: Yeah, it definitely has a go-go music vibe too, which I quite like when the uh, the bongos come in. I do like that. Yeah, this would have been an easy edit to make too because the song breaks at the three minute forty-seven mark. Yeah, they might have had that in mind when they were putting out SST-117, I guess. Yeah. Good lyrics, though, about struggling to get by, you know? Yeah, I I
1: was thinking, you know, if I was into HR, like, in real time back in the day, and was anticipating this after hearing, you know, the stuff on the HR tapes... You'd be let down. Yeah, for sure. I'd be disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) You would be. Yeah. Yeah. And then we flip it over for the B side. No return. Again, cool song. Could have this could have been a Bad Brains track on Eye Against Eye or something. Like it has that vibe to it. Yes, yes, especially during the chorus when the chugging guitar comes in, for sure. Yeah, yeah. If you would have taken the synth off
0: this and had Doctor No
1: tearing shit up, could have been a Bad Brains track.
0: Seems to be about like I don't know. When you read the lyrics, it's hard to tell what. What it's about, my guess, is that it's no return once you devote yourself to Rastafari. That's my guess. Yeah, maybe. It comes in kind of a lime green sleeve with the hole cut out. Yeah. It doesn't have any artwork on the sleeve except for the UPC code, but it does have a sweet SST. Like The only thing that they put on it is SST and the UPC code. They could have put more on, but that's it. Yeah, well, I think it's maybe
1: a throwback to reggae 12-inch promos, you know? Totally. Uh, The LP label has what I assume is a blown-up and pixelated and colored red photo of HR's eye. You think it's his? I'm assuming. No dead wax, though. Hmm.
0: Ballot result? Yeah, man.
1: Ballot result.
0: So did we choose either of these for one seventeen? No, we chose the song Life After Death. Okay. Well, I could go either way, but I'd probably lean toward Now You Say. Yeah, I same with me.
1: I'd go either way, but I could do Now You Say. It is the A-side, so.
0: Yeah. It's too bad there's not more info on, like, why the hell was this put out. Yeah. I think it's a really reasonable guess, though, that this was intended for radio play. There's a lot of indicators that suggest that's the reason. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking the other day, though, remember when we were kind of a
1: couple weeks back, you know, trying to decide whether we wanted to put both of the songs off of the Keep Out of Reach 12-inch and which song we wanted off the HR tapes and a lot of that stuff. And probably maybe even both of these songs are on the HR anthology. Yes. Which we're (laughs) going to get into way later. So... (laughs) Yeah. So we'll get another crack at those, but probably want maybe a couple tracks off of Charge, anyways. So, mm-hmm. all right. Hey, thanks to Jim Ebert for being on the show. It was great chatting with him. Yeah, you bet. All right, Ryan, what's next week?
0: Next week, Brent, we're going to go back to some familiar territory again, but I'm really pumped to do it. It is SST 174, the Zoog's Rift Son of Puke cassette. Yeah. And, And we've got a special guest.
1: Yeah, Laura Rift is going to be on the show.
0: Oh, cannot wait.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content.